You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. Well, good morning to you. If uh, we've not met before, my name is Matt Luloyan, and I serve as one of the pastors here at Liberty Church. Uh, we're going to continue on this morning in our series in the book of Philippians. Um, so if you have Bibles, you can make your way to Philippians chapter 3. And if you want to use one of those black hardcover Bibles under your seat or somewhere nearby, uh, page 981 is where you can find today's text. As you're uh, turning there, just a, a question for you to consider this morning. Have you ever known someone in your life who trades on past accomplishments? I think maybe athletes are most prone to do this. If you're like a really good athlete growing up and then you're not an athlete anymore, but you still want the credit for being a good athlete earlier in your life. Uh, But someone whose life is defined by maybe one or two things they did in the past, a while back. Uh, And as you get to know them, maybe they've got a really incredible story. And the first time you hear it, you're, you're amazed. Wow, I can't believe that that's actually something you were part of in your life. But then as you get to know them a little bit in the days and weeks that follow, and you hear him tell the, the same stories for like the 10,000th time, your perspective changes a little bit, and you start to maybe, maybe even be concerned about them. Their, their life is too defined by this thing that happened in the past, and they might need to, to move on. The Apostle Paul could very easily have been someone like that. Could very easily have been someone like that. By this point in his life, as he writes this letter to the church in Philippi, he's done a ton of things. A lot of people through his life and presence and ministry, a lot of people have come to put their faith in Jesus. A lot of churches have been established and planted. A lot of leaders have been raised up for those churches. Last week, Paul shared some of his pre-Christian resume, the things that he was part of before he came to faith in Christ. But if you think about it, his Christian resume is even more impressive. All the stuff he did after that moment on the Damascus Road. So Paul is someone who easily could have traded on past accomplishments, past faithfulness, past obedience. But what we see, especially in today's text, is that he doesn't do that. As he's going to say here, he is still very much a man in process, very much a man still in pursuit of a prize. He is a man who presses on. So we're going to jump right in this morning. I invite you now to listen with open ears to this book that we love. This is Philippians chapter 3, and I'm going to begin in verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, and that word there in the original language means siblings, so I'm going to say brothers and sisters, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have already attained. Brothers and sisters, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many, of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame, with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it 
we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. Father, even as we've read today, you, you are the God of the upward call. You are the God of transformation. Jesus, you are the one who will one day transform our lowly bodies to be like your resurrected glorious body. And so now in this moment, by the power of your Holy Spirit, help us to discern your voice. Strengthen us today to press on in our walk with Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So you, uh, you perhaps noticed as I was reading a moment ago, this is the part of Philippians uh, from which we stole our series title. Twice in this text, both in verses 12 and 14, the Apostle Paul says, I press on, I press on to make it my own toward the goal, I press on. So Paul is not settling for past achievements. Paul keeps going. And with our time this morning, we're going to look at four things that are involved in pressing on toward the goal. Four things. The pursuit, the process, the parties, and the prize. The pursuit, the process, the parties, and the prize. So first, let's talk about the pursuit. If you were with us last week, as Paul was writing through what we have as verse 11, he was, he was writing about his longing to somehow attain his own resurrection from the dead, his own glorification. But now in verse 12, he immediately follows that up by saying, I haven't gotten there yet. I haven't obtained that yet. I have not yet been made perfect. Ever since the the beginning of the church, some people have wrongly assumed that perfection is possible in this life. The the church tradition that I grew up in actually believed a a variety, a variation of that. Uh, And some traditions actually go a whole lot further than the one I grew up in. So I remember some years back uh, picking up a, a denominational magazine and reading some profiles of a few key leaders in that denomination. And in each person's bio, the little profile about them, they included two dates. There was first a date of their salvation, the the day that they put their faith in Jesus and began to to follow Jesus. And then there was a date of their sanctification. Uh, There was a date that they had reached this sanctified state. Poor Paul, he's only got one date on his profile. He's only got one date on on his bio. He has not obtained that second one yet. And this is kind of a a pro tip. If if the Apostle Paul would not qualify for leadership in your denomination, you might want to rethink how you're doing a few things. You might want to tweak a couple things there. Now, to be fair, when this tradition was saying that these leaders were sanctified, uh, they weren't saying that they were actually perfect yet. Uh, There was kind of this nuanced category that as long as they didn't make a deliberate choice to sin, they could still make mistakes. They could still unintentionally sin. They just wouldn't call it sin. They would call it mistakes instead. I think it's just a lot safer to go with Paul's view here in Philippians 3. He, he wants to reach this perfected, sanctified state, but he's not there yet. And he won't be, as he writes at the end of this text, he won't be until Jesus comes again. But in the meantime, Paul writes, I will single-mindedly devote my life to the pursuit, to one thing, verse 13. I will press on to make this my own. He's going to strain forward. He's going to press on toward the goal. 
Paul's language here is language he uses elsewhere, a picture he uses in other parts of his writing in the New Testament. It's the language of a runner. He sees himself here running a race. And like any successful runner, that means not looking backward over your shoulder. It means fixing your eyes forward. And then it means driving hard in the moment, in the present. So in a race, uh, you can't look backward. And Paul writes here, forgetting what lies behind. Uh, Now he's not talking about ignoring your past or just sweeping things under the rug. He actually just got done in in the text we looked at last week, writing about his past, writing about his former life as someone that was leading the way as a Jewish leader persecuting the church. He wrote about that. Some of us have incredibly painful pasts. And all of us have at least some baggage, much baggage, from our lives in the past. And we will hit walls at various moments in our lives where in order to even be able to move forward, we're going to have to come to terms with and deal with with those things. So Paul's not referring to that. He's talking about a kind of forgetfulness that does not allow your whole life to be defined by your past. Where your whole life is not defined by past failures or by past achievements. We have a tendency, do we not, to 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 define our lives by those things and then stop. We, We start to think, well, I'm the man who failed in this miserable way. That's who I am. I'm the woman who achieved this great success. That's who That's who I am. End of story. Paul is saying, no, the race is not over. It's not over. So whether it's your past faithfulness and obedience, or whether it's your past unfaithfulness and disobedience, stop looking over your shoulder and being defined and and defining your life by what has already happened. Instead, as he continues, fix your eyes forward. Strain forward to what lies ahead. Focus on, on the part of this race that remains unfinished. One of the, the prayers of confession that we use at times here at Liberty Church captures this same idea. At times we pray together to God, set us free from a past that we cannot change. Open to us a future in which we can be changed. That's, that's what it means. That's capturing the same idea of what it means to forget what lies behind and strain forward to what lies ahead. And then as we fix our eyes forward, Paul says, drive hard in the present. Kick hard, run hard in that race. Don't let up. Press on toward the goal and give this pursuit everything you have. The the longer you're a Christian, the more years that you have walked with Jesus, and I know some of you in this room have walked with Jesus for a long time in your life, the longer you're a Christian, the more there's a danger of what I would call an arrival mentality. Thinking or acting like you've arrived. Now, what might that look like in real life? Well, it might look like settling into this nice, quiet, religious life. It might look like church attendance, checking all the right boxes that Christians are supposed to check, but just coasting. No hunger or thirst for Jesus. No drive. Any major exertions you have, any weeping and pounding the table you've done for people to come to know Jesus, any pouring yourself out in service of another person, any resisting sin in your own life to the point of shedding blood. If you have any of that, it's all in the rearview mirror. And you get to this place where you start to think, yeah, you know what? I I did that once when I was a young Christian. You should have seen me then. Man, I was hungry for Jesus then. Now, though, it's, it's someone else's turn. 
men and women, if Jesus hasn't returned and there is breath in your lungs, it is still your turn. It is still your turn. This mist of a life, 70 years or even by reason of strength, 80. That whole thing is your race, is your turn. There are times to rest. Uh, There are times to heal from wounds. And you will always, over the course of your life, have to say no to some of the things that come across your plate. Things that you could do that would be good to do, but you just can't do all of them. But there is not a single day in your life where it is okay for a Christian to start trading on past service or past achievements. And, And if those things are part of your life and part of your past, praise God. Praise God. That means you're running the right race. That means you're on the right racetrack. But we always have to be asking ourselves, how about today? Will I run today? As much as this is true for us individually, it's also true for us collectively as a, as a church. Even the timing of, of looking at Paul's letter to the Philippians, just before we kicked off this series, we got to celebrate 10 years of being a church together. And if you were able to be with us back in early February for that celebration, I hope that we did justice to, to all of the, the grace and glory of God that we've gotten to see and experience together in, in a decade. But God forbid we would ever just start looking back over our shoulder and coast a while. Today, for us collectively too, is another day to press on. It's another day to strain forward to what is ahead. It's another day, even as you heard Chris talking about a moment ago, to dream and labor about how we can be a blessing to our neighbors in celebration of Jesus and his resurrection. It's a a day where we can dream and labor about being part of seeing churches planted and missionaries raised up and sent out. A day where we can pursue sharpening and serving one another as a church family. We are not perfect and we will not be in this life, but let us always be pursuing Second, second, let's talk about the process. The process. In verses 15 and 16, Paul starts to talk about maturity and a little bit about the process by which we press on. In verse 12, as we've just been reading, he he says, I'm not perfect, I've not yet arrived. But then in verse 15, he considers himself among the mature. He considers himself part of this group of people who are mature. So what is Christian maturity? What is Christian maturity? This text gives us a phenomenal definition of Christian maturity. Maturity is realizing how immature you are. That's maturity. The closer you actually are to perfection, the closer you are to sanctification, the more aware you are of how imperfect you remain. That's another huge danger of an arrival mentality in the Christian life. If you stop pressing on and you just start to consider yourself to be a mature veteran Christian, you'll actually be at risk of doing some really immature things. You might change churches for immature, silly reasons. You might presume a leadership role without actually serving your way into one. And I got to do this at first service when he was here. I'm going to do it second service and just you know, trust that you can thank him for this later. But I'm going to brag on and honor one of our elders for a second this morning. When Mike and Barb Schuff came to Liberty Church, Mike had been a pastor for about as many years as I'd been alive, okay? And he presumed nothing. He presumed nothing. Though he, was, he had been a pastor for three plus decades and I'd been a pastor for like five minutes, he just started serving. He didn't trade on past accomplishments. That's what maturity looks like, men and women. 
That's, I hope I'm Mike Schuff when I grow up. That's what maturity looks like. And then notice here too, this, this process of how we grow in maturity. Paul talks about that. We, verse 16, we hold true to what we have already attained. And at the very same time, verse 15, we trust God to reveal more and more along the way. Maturity comes as we keep running the race. Because we've not yet arrived yet, we still have blind spots. With Paul, we're always acknowledging that we're not yet perfect. And so we should actually expect that God's going to be continually revealing the specific ways that we are imperfect as we go. If you've experienced this, and I know a number of you have, you know how discouraging it can be to have walked with Jesus for a long time only to discover yet one more imperfection and maybe a serious one, one more blind spot, something that you just didn't see in your life and now all of a sudden you see it. Before I became a pastor, I thought I was a disciplined person. I am kind of a disciplined person, but I thought I was really a disciplined person before I became a pastor. But if you were to observe my life, and I know some of you do and have, and especially how I spend the late evening hours, some nights of the week, you would observe how much more maturity, how much more growth I still have to go in self-control. We had a men's one-day gathering yesterday. I got to tell some of the guys sitting with me at my table in my discussion group that day that I, that I tend to, to start my day like a Christian, but end my day like a deist. So, so I tend to start my day really attentive to God, relying upon him. I tend to start with good rhythms of prayer and reading my Bible. But then it's like a deist, you know, who thinks that God kind of started the world, but then it's up to them to, to, to carry it on from there. And so by the end of the day, I'm starting to think, well, I guess it's on me to kind of shut down my, my mind. It's busy and to somehow unburden myself from the stresses and the burdens of the day. And so between just checking out and numbing myself with TV or eating too much junk food or drinking alcohol, like or combinations of all three of those things, I've had to face the reality that maybe I'm not quite as disciplined. Maybe I'm not quite as mature as I thought I was. Paul is saying here, Christian maturity means holding true to what we've already attained, living consistently with what God has already shown us about our lives, and to expect more is coming. To expect more is, is coming. That by next year, and that by 10 years from now, God will have revealed that much more to us. Maturity is to keep pressing on in that. It's to keep running the race with complete expectation, complete anticipation that this is what it will actually look like in real life to grow in this. Friends, we, we need this framework for the process of maturity in our own lives. We need this framework for ourselves. We also need it as a framework for other people's maturity. When Paul says here, if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. He's not taking some kind of smug cheap shot at the Philippians. He's not saying, well, hey, if you ignore my advice, you'll have to learn the hard way. Maybe sounds like that for a second. That's not what he's saying. No, what is Paul doing? He is putting supreme confidence in God. He's committing people's process of maturity into God's hands. He's committing those people themselves into God's hands. We tend to have a lot of grace for our own process and not a lot of grace for other people's process. Is that not true? Especially when their process is different from ours. We want grace and we want patience for ourselves. 
We want some time for God to reveal these things, to expose these things in our lives, and time for us to understand that and to work that out. But we want other people to just hurry up and get there. Part of maturity in the Christian life is trusting God with another person's process. Part of maturity in the Christian life is trusting God with another person's process. And it's growing in discernment to know when it's our turn to confront and to call out someone for their immaturity. Because sometimes as we are in community together, we are God's means of of revealing and exposing those things. But it's also having discernment to know when instead to entrust that person to God, to remember that God is at work in their life too. Maybe you can even imagine and think for just a moment right now of a person that you would love to see grow up and mature as a Christian or maybe just in life in general. Have that person in your mind and then hear this. God loves that person more than you possibly could. And God is more committed to that person's sanctification, to bringing that person to this place of perfection than you or I ever possibly could be. You can trust God to work to reveal things without you always needing to be the instrument of that revelation. That's part of their process of maturity, and it's also part of your, yours, your process of maturity. So that's the pursuit. That's the process Third, let's talk about the parties, the parties. And Paul mentions here two groups or two parties, if you're going for an alliteration, which I was. Two parties in verses 17 through 19, examples and enemies. Examples and enemies. So first, verse 17, examples. Paul here invites the Philippian Christians to to imitate him, to follow the example that he and other people have set for them. If you've been with us in this series Um, Paul has talked a lot about examples in this letter. So back in chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, he pointed to Jesus as the ultimate example. And he said, follow Jesus in his humility. Be like that. And then later in chapter 2, he pointed to Timothy and Epaphroditus. And he said, follow their example of being united servants. They're doing a good job exemplifying that for you. Do what they do. Now here in chapter 3, he's saying, and also me. I'm an example. As I follow Jesus, follow me. Examples are are really powerful. We learn so much in our lives by following the example of another person. As the saying goes, so much is caught, not taught. Family friend of ours uh, had a really dysfunctional home life growing up. And so as an adult, when she started to have a family of her own, she was really kind of scrambling, looking for a better example. And the only one she could find, the only one she could think of in that moment in her life was leave it to Beaver. I know I'm dating myself. That's even before my time. But some of you know that that TV show, Leave it to Beaver. Well, the family in Leave it to Beaver looked a lot happier than her family did when she was growing up. And so at least there was something there that she could watch and say, okay, I'm going to try to mimic and imitate that. The human heart needs examples to follow, desperately. We need people, we need examples to follow. And Paul is saying here, Philippians, by the grace of God, you actually have some good ones. You have some good ones. You can imitate people you know personally and you have observed and been in relationship with and seen up close with your own eyes. The most encouraging thing about this, apart from Jesus, the ultimate example, all of the other examples are imperfect. 
imperfect. Paul can say, think about this with a straight face in this text. He can say, I have not arrived. I am far from perfect. But by the grace of God, by what God has already shown me and what God has already done in me, I'm worth imitating. I am not yet there, but I'm still worth imitating. And this is particularly important because as we see next, there's another party, another group in Philippi. Paul calls them, he describes them in verse 18 as enemies of the cross of Christ. What is it that makes these men and women enemies? Well, instead of devoting themselves to God, their God is their belly. So so they're devoting themselves to satisfying their own hungers, their own desires, their own wants. And instead of glorying in Jesus, instead of boasting in him, Paul says, they glory in their shame. They're, They're bragging about things that they should actually be embarrassed about. This could apply to a lot of things, but Paul seems to have in view here, and we learn this from some clues in the original language, he seems to have in view various forms of sexual immorality. So we learn here that not only in ours, in every era, which includes ours, we are inclined as a culture to flaunt what we would call sexual freedom, but it's actual, actually sexual slavery. We're, we're, call, we're, we're inclined to call things good that are actually evil. We're inclined to boast about things that we should actually be ashamed about. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame. And then he says, their minds are set on earthly things. So where Paul and the other examples worth following are citizens of heaven, he says in verse 20, their minds are, are occupied with things of eternal value. They're looking forward to that day that Jesus comes again. Enemies of the cross are consumed with this world. They're consumed with the here and now. So two huge things for us to see here. First, there's an us and a them. There is an us and there is a them. And it's really important for us to see this. In a letter that's all about unity. I mean, how much has Paul talked about unity in this letter to the Philippians? all the time. But in a letter that's all about unity, we have to remember there is substance to unity. It's not everyone just nicely, you know, playing nice, getting along for the sake of getting along. In any moment of human history, there are different parties present. There are citizens of heaven and there are enemies of the cross of Christ. And Paul's saying the stakes are really high. They're really high. People who follow examples like Paul, people who hang their whole lives on Jesus by trusting in his life and death and resurrection, they are citizens of heaven. They are brought into the kingdom of God. They are adopted into God's family. And because of Jesus, they are bound for eternity with God. They get to spend eternity in a reconciled relationship with God. Enemies of the cross, on the other hand, Paul writes, are bound for destruction. Perdition is that word. Hell. They are on a path not to be reconciled with God for all eternity. They're on a path to experience God's judgment and wrath against sin. And so as much as Christians must always be welcoming and hospitable people, we have to remember that there is an us and there is a them. That the stakes demand that we be clear about this. But second, we do this with tears in our eyes. Paul says, I tell you even again, with tears. The the us-them distinction that Paul is laying out here, it's not fueled by anger. 
or frustration. It's not fueled by a superiority complex, like look how much better we are than those people over there. What is this distinction fueled by? Compassion. Compassion. Think about it. Enemies of Jesus can't bring themselves to worship anything better than themselves and their own desires in a given moment. Enemies of Jesus are so turned around that they're bragging about things they should actually be embarrassed of. Our integrity demands tears for men and women like this. Because who, after all, are the citizens of heaven? Who are the examples worth imitating? They are redeemed and reconciled enemies. That's who they are. Who once walked as an enemy of the cross of Christ? I did. Who once walked as an enemy of the cross of Christ? Paul did. And such were some of you. Such were us. Why are initiatives like Easter Outreach important? Why are they important? Because as Christians, we always want enemies to become examples. We always want the them to become us. Even this afternoon, there are neighbors coming over to my house for a neighborhood Easter egg hunt, and some of them at this moment in their lives are enemies of the cross of Christ. God forbid that I would ever become content in leaving them there. And that I wouldn't be able to look them in the eye as an image bearer of God and say, oh, I want so much more for you than this. And there is more for you than this. If you're inclined to, to blur this distinction because it's uncomfortable and because it feels exclusive, remember today in light of Philippians 3, there is an us and there is a them. And for us to pretend otherwise is not loving and it makes a mockery of how high the stakes are. On the other hand, God help us if we make this distinction with a dry eye. Such were some of us. By the grace of God, we want enemies to become our brothers and sisters. Like Paul himself, may former enemies become examples worth imitating. Fourth and finally, let's talk about the prize. The prize. This is not a running through the wilderness aimlessly. This is a race that has a finish line, a goal, a prize, as Paul puts it. And he says there in verse verse 14, the prize is the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now, calling or call is a word that we usually associate with the beginning of our faith, that, that we actually become Christians. We start to follow Jesus because God calls us to himself. And that's absolutely true. But here, Paul is looking at it from the vantage point of the finish line. He's at the finish line looking backward. And it's a process that he lays out in other places like Romans 8, where those God chooses, he calls. Those God calls, he justifies. Those God justifies, he glorifies. God's calling is the thing that actually brings people all the way through. And here's the best news of all. The prize is Jesus himself. The prize is Jesus himself. As citizens of heaven, as Paul writes here at the end of this text, we are awaiting our resurrection. We are awaiting our glorification. The day that we have these glorious bodies that aren't corrupted, that aren't affected by disease and illness and aging and the the decay that we all go through as we age. We await the day that Jesus fully and finally puts down the rebellion that persists against him, where he really does bring all things in subjection to himself. But more than those things, more than anything else, what we are awaiting 
is our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel, the good news of this message is not primarily, here's all the benefits we get because of what Jesus has done. The gospel is primarily, at the end of the day, when this thing's all over, you get Jesus. You get Jesus. In Lent, we are especially aware that we have not yet arrived. This is a season where we are purposefully remembering our sin and its consequences, where where we see sometimes uncomfortably close our mortality and death and the destruction that sin brings about in our lives and in this world. But in Lent, we are always anticipating Easter. We're always anticipating Easter. Like Paul, we are awaiting our own resurrection. We are longing for and awaiting the day that we finally shed this image of the man of dust and we get to bear the image of the man of heaven. Where we finally get to be rid of the sin that persists in us and we actually get to arrive at this place of perfection that Paul is describing here. Even more than all of these things, we anticipate Jesus. He is the prize at the finish line of this race. That's the prize that awaits for you. It's Jesus himself. But Liberty Church, here's the good news. Jesus is also with you now. He is with you now. This same Jesus, as Paul started this text, has already made you his own. He has made you his own. So now press on to make this your own. Stop defining your life by past failures or achievements. Stop kidding yourself that you've arrived when none of us have. As former enemies of the cross of Christ, may we become examples worth imitating. And until he comes, may you press on toward Jesus, your prize. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we confess that we are prone to just coast in our lives. That we forget the place from where you have brought us or We look back at it and we're happy about it, but we think it's all in the rearview mirror now. Someone else's turn. Forgive us for that. Help us to be individuals. Help us to be a church body, a church family that presses on toward the goal. Even now as we come to your table, would you meet us with the grace that we so desperately need to press on today? Would you renew us? Would you renew us in the grace that you offer us here to help us press on today? Help us now to have the strength we need to live out this message that we've heard from Paul. And we pray this, Jesus, all in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.